Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me in the same room, and dre- not only wearing clothes, but all dressed up, gussied up for today's event, is Ellie Mistal. Gussied up. I've got my uh, pinky on the brain uh, cufflinks on. I've got a ball of NyQuil in front of me because I'm a little bit under the weather. Oh, well. Powering through like a champion on primary day. Yes, well, that's why you were all dressed up. You were on uh, Morning Joe this morning, I'd right? I had a TV spot this morning. Um, but before my TV spot, I went to vote, do my uh, civic duty that my ancestors, you know, fought and bled and died for in Westchester, which is, you know, not exactly where my ancestors fought and bled and died for, but, you know, where I've made it to. So I go to do my civic duty. And, of course, I moved up to Westchester from the city about 18 months ago. And I go to vote, and I'm still not on the goddamn rolls. And I don't understand why, because I changed my registration, and I still have to fill out the provisional ballot, or in New York, it's called the affidavit ballot, because there's still some complication about where my registration is. This shouldn't be so hard. My mother did not march with Martin Luther King, so I could not figure out where to vote in New York City, of all places, or that's the whole point, in New York State, of all places, right? Right. So I just... I just feel other states have early voting, so I wouldn't have had to squeeze it in right before my television parents. Other places have same-day voter registration, same-day balloting. Why can't I just fall in with limited knowledge and make my mark next to the candidate of my choice? Why is it so freaking hard in the greatest democracy on earth? Uh, okay. Uh, multiple problems with it in New York. I mean, New York is a fairly corrupt state as far as voting rights go. It was, New York City was in fact one of the pre-approval jurisdictions under the Voting Rights Act before the Supreme Court decided that that didn't exist anymore. It honestly feels like it would be easier if I could just go down to Boss Tweed and be like, here's my sign. Well, and there's an additional hurdle that you have to face in a primary too, because it isn't, in many ways, it isn't really a civic duty. It's a duty to help the party determine who the strongest candidate is. So you also have to have registered under their rules, which require you to register as part of the party for months ahead of time for no reason. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, so I cast my vote with the uh, I'm with her, I guess, people. Yeah. No, you wrote, a, uh, you wrote an excellent piece on it as far as traffic goes at ATL Redline for people who want to read that. It wasn't so great as far as its internal reasoning, but as far as a traffic piece, it was really very popular. It's like the most popular thing I've ever read. I know, that's so depressing for you. So listeners, in case you're wondering, Joe is your kind of classic upper middle class white male liberal who's pro-Bernie. Yeah, uh, I'm not so much. Yay, magical thinking. No, please, go on. No, no, um, well, I think there are a few things. One, I wouldn't really consider myself pro-Bernie as much as pro a wing of the party that I think he's currently the vessel for as far as expressing dissatisfaction within the party. But So you're pro-dissatisfaction? Yeah, it's what <laughs> internally we call the Warren wing, yeah. I think that, look, you say magical thinking, and I think that's been, your whole article kind of boils down to that ridiculous canard, which makes no sense because it rests on the foundation that that ultimately, while we have a guy who's 
immensely reasonable and moderate now who can't get National Ice Cream Day approved by Congress that if we instead replaced him with a woman that they've literally spent 25 years vilifying, she'll get something passed. It's like, no, neither of these people are getting anything passed. You're voting for a, as I put it, a veto machine who nominates judges. So it really shouldn't matter whether or not they can get something done. What really matters is, as I put it, it's kind of the reverse of the old poker adage. I really don't care what a president looks like when the chips are down. I get it. You're not going to get anything done. I'm more interested in what somebody looks like when they're playing big stack because you're not going to get anything done either way. What are you going to do when you actually do have a windfall election? What are you going to get done? And one person says they're going to do some things and the other one says nothing. Only one person is working on those down ballot races, though, that will get you the majority, and that person's name is Hillary. Stephen, Stephen, get in here. So, listeners, we're joined today by Stephen Chung, who's a friend of the show, friend of the site, a tax attorney in Los Angeles. Stephen, uh, your day is yet to come. Get in here on our on our battle here. <laughs> Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. Well, I'm happy to hear about um, your election troubles. Here, it's not too bad. Um, we're just having some local elections here, and so far we haven't heard of any instances of corruption or, thankfully, violence or anything like that. But definitely hearing stories from New York and what's going on out there can be interesting. So it's like primary day now. Ours is not coming till fairly late, and given the size of our population and the number of electoral votes at stake, um, I'm sort of wondering why we're so late in the game, but I guess there's a reason for this. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that so many people get left out that way, but the parties feel like the bigger states should go later because it's more expensive to compete in them, and theoretically, the wheat has been separated from the chaff by the time it comes to states like New York and California. Also, by the time we get to California, it's unheard of for the nomination to still be in any, in any real doubt by the time you get to California. And I think it serves a purpose of like making the eventual nominee seem like they're going into convention with momentum, winning yeah. the most popular state, winning the most delegates in the last contest. Obviously, this year it's going to be a lot more contentious out there. What are you hearing on the ground out there? Is uh, California for Cruz, is that happening? Is that going to be a thing? Well, I mean, if my Facebook page is any indicator, it seems like most of the people are pro-Bernie. Some of my older friends are more Hillary, but like all the young people my age, maybe the millennials, they're pretty much pro-Bernie, putting all sorts of posters and, and catchy talking points, talk about all sorts of things like student loan forgiveness, which I'm helping people working on the last couple of days. But I mean, I think I've been told that it's pretty much mathematically impossible for Bernie to win, but I think given his popularity... I think some of the proposals are going to have an impact on what Hillary does come general election. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately the whole point. Having delegates on the floor who will push the platform committee, who will push the rules committee, is the whole reason why, even though it's mathematically impossible for him to really capture the nomination, that anyone who cares about those sorts of things has a duty to feed more delegates to that cause. Or they can just give up like Ellie has. Yeah, I'm just going to – look, I graduated from college in 2000. My spiral notebook from my senior year has a lot of Bill Bradley stickers too, okay? Oh, that's a shame. When you're young, Bernie's the guy you're supposed to go with. And then, you know, you get older. You know, my Napster profile, right, probably has some sweet Bill Bradley quotes up there, right? But you get a little bit older, you realize that stealing music is still stealing, and you make wiser choices. Oh, see, you've got Bill Bradley things because you're a horrible, horrible Knicks fan. (laughs) That's, That's your whole reason for that. There was no real reason to be into Bill Bradley other than you kind of wanted to see the Knicks win at something. Yeah, let's get off this topic before you make me a murderer, Joe. Uh, oh, transition. Wow, that was, that was almost impressive. 
So we wanted to uh, bring on our headlining guest today. That's Dean Strang. He is a criminal defense lawyer from Madison, Wisconsin. He was made famous for doing his job, essentially, um, but popularized by the Netflix original series, Making a Murderer. He's been on tour with his co-counsel in the uh, big uh, Steve Avery case, Jerry Bunting, doing conversations about justice. Dean, thanks so much for coming on. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I know you're crunched for time, Dean, so I wanted to ask you this question. Most of our audience are lawyers, law students, people who want to get involved in the profession. As I kind of joked in my bio, you're famous for being a lawyer who basically just did his job in the criminal defense context. We can draw distinctions between you and uh, perhaps Len Chaminsky, who's getting kind of the other end of that stick in the popular retelling of this story. But now that you've been in it, what do you think about the popular cultural portrayal of lawyers in the media. Do you think that our pop culture understanding of lawyers is correct, is good? What does it get right? What does it get wrong? Well, thank you for pointing out that I have no reason to be famous, that Jerry Butte and I only were doing our jobs. And I think that the pop cultural portrayals tilt heavily in recent decades toward lawyers who may be interesting, sort of compelling, quirky characters on TV, but mostly are not doing their jobs in the way we would want lawyers to do them. You see portrayals of lawyers as avaricious, engaged in sharp practice, or outright illegal activity, unethical practice, and just generally pretty unpleasant behavior on the whole. And I guess I want to just draw this out of you. We see that often in the media, but that's not your impression from like just talking with lawyers and working with lawyers every day. No, most of the lawyers I know are working really hard to do their jobs as well as they can, whether they're prosecutors, whether they're defense lawyers or or civil lawyers. A lot of lawyers are not terribly happy in their work, but you know, most of the people I run into really are doing their level best to do a good job. Yeah, the unhappy lawyers are why I have a job. Um, but but I, no, I like this. This is, you know, these are honest public servants who do not belong at the bottom of an ocean um, in a school bus. As I said, we have a lot of uh, law student um, listeners. How do people do what you do? Because, you know, we deal a lot with students at Above the Law, especially. We deal a lot with students at high-end law schools who are taking on you know, massive amounts of debt. When they got into law school, they didn't think their choices were going to be big law corporate attorney on Wall Street or personal injury ambulance chaser. They thought they were going to be working for criminal justice and and for the greater good. And that doesn't happen for them. So give us a little sense of like, how do you go from getting a law degree and and a respect to school and, and taking on that debt to actually building a practice doing what you do? Well, I had a very peculiar route to that and started with a large civil firm. When I got into criminal defense, I was fortunate enough to find really good mentors. Now, that can be done by going to a, you know, an actual firm that does criminal defense work. Uh, it can be certainly done by going to a public defender office. And although those jobs don't pay well enough usually and may not pay enough to help you know, someone repays student loans. If you can afford to go to a public defender's office, you'll find good mentors at most of them. And even if you just hang out a shingle and in solo practice, many of the better criminal defense lawyers are really generous with their time with young lawyers. So the key, I think, is to find good mentors and ask for help. 
I want to double back towards conversations about justice. Now, here on Above the Law, Ken Kratz was famous long before Netflix. His uh, I am the prize statement made our pages uh, long before anybody else knew about him without kind of jumping up and down on Ken Kratz. Can you talk a little bit about your impressions of prosecutorial overreach? Uh, my colleague here, Joe Patrice, he has a particular bug up his ass about this one. Well, <laughs> prosecutorial overreach. At one level, it's very common because the prevalence of uh, plea agreements in our system tempts prosecutors, at a minimum, tempts them to overcharge at the outset on the expectation that they'll simply roll back charges to about where they ought to be in the plea negotiation process. That initial overreach, which is very common and I realize also very tempting, nonetheless distorts the system from the very start in that even if you are plea bargaining, you're starting with an inflated opening bid, so to speak. But beyond that, in the you know, in a day of online electronic court records, the frequently inflated charges at the outset haunt somebody forever, even if the case later is negotiated down to, you know, a more reasonable resolution. You know, beyond that which is sort of the most common area of prosecutorial overreach that I see. Look, this is an adversarial system. It's competitive. We're all human and lawyers on both sides, I think often in the heat of the moment, put winning above doing justice. And when you're putting winning or settling personal scores above doing justice, the probabilities that you're overreaching are very, very high. And it certainly doesn't help that these offices tend to have statistics and win boards or be elected that gives all the more incentive to winning. Yeah, that just that adds to the competitive personal quality of this, which is at odds with the stated goals of the system. So are you, in, just for our listeners, we're recording this on primary day, are you in favor of popular elections for prosecutors or should we elect them? Should we appoint them? Like, what do you think is a possible uh, a solution to some of these problems? My view is we should be electing prosecutors and electing sheriffs, but not electing judges. Yeah. Okay. Why is that? Well, you know, I live in a state where we elect judges at all levels, and it's not just retention elections, it's open elections. And the effect of a looming election on judicial behavior on the bench day to day is unmistakable over time. Just the eye on whether you're going to lose your job turns up as the silent criterion in a lot of judicial decision making, and it doesn't contribute to better judging. You're on the side of angels, and by angels I mean Sandra Day O'Connor, who's made a big point in her post-Supreme Court career of pushing for appointment of uh, local judges. Right, and an appointment process isn't necessarily you know, perfect either. Patronage can work in, political favors can work into that, but it's easier to design, I think, a merit system of judicial appointment than it is to take out the politics from a system of electing judges. Stephen, did you have any uh, questions? I wanted to bring you in here. Okay, well, based on, I saw the documentary recently, and I mean, with all the themes about the prosecutorial misconduct and I guess some level of politics involved, do you think this is the, pretty much the best, well, in other words, is our criminal justice system better than everybody else's, in your opinion? No, I do think it's an American conceit that we do it better all the time than everybody. There's certainly things we do well here, but 
you know, we could look for best practices at a lot of other countries and improve our own system if we were willing, you know, a little less chauvinism about our system and willing to look for best practices wherever we might find them. Okay. Uh, Just one more quick question. Do you think there could be a better way of judging how prosecutors do their job instead of counting how many convictions they scored? I mean, their job is not necessarily to convict everyone that comes to their desk, but it seems like that's what they're being judged on. It very frequently is. How do you recommend that prosecutor? Well, you know, one thing you might do is sort of adopt a critical incident review process or approach to looking at you know, when charges get dismissed, why did that happen? When evidence gets suppressed, why did that happen? When there's a jury acquittal, why did that happen? When there's a reversal on appeal, why did that happen? And, you know, if we started looking at some of these things as critical incidents and examining honestly where things went wrong from a state perspective, you know, we might come closer to a better set of metrics for prosecutors adopting in, in other words something close to what healthcare systems do with bad patient outcomes and when i say you know these are bad outcomes for the state they're actually bad outcomes for everybody um, because if you go through a trial and you're acquitted in the end that's better than a wrongful conviction but you've been arrested you've been charged, the electronic records are going to haunt you forever, you've lost money, you've lost your reputation, often you've lost the support of friends and family. So acquittals, you know, even an acquittal is not a desirable event in our criminal justice system. As I say, it's only one step better than a wrongful guilty verdict. Right. That's an amazing point. It makes me so super sad that the, the acquittal is the best of the worst outcomes. Tian, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we really appreciate your time. I was delighted to talk with you, and thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Well, all right. Thanks to Dean for joining us. Thanks to Stephen for helping out with our questions and with our grinding of gears. And thank you, Ellie, for being here and doing what you do every day. Thank you, Joe. No. Yeah, no, uh, if you are already listening to the show as a subscriber, that's great. If you aren't, you should be subscribing through your various podcast subscribing services like iTunes. Also, be sure to leave us a review there. It helps us move up the ranks in their little algorithm of who's important in the world of legal podcasting. You can Read, read my st- post! Yeah, you can read our stuff at ATL Redline as well as Above the Law. And you can follow us. He's at L-E-N-Y-C. I'm at Joseph Patrice because, stupidly, I don't remember the password to at Joe Patrice. So, and uh, stupidly, I don't live in NYC anymore. It's yeah, you Twitter don't. handles, really. They yeah, follow no. you, though, man. Yeah, because you, you kind of sold out and moved to the suburbs. Sold out. Yeah, that's, yeah. Not, that's exactly how my wife puts it. So yeah. We sold out. <laughs> All right. Well, talk to everybody next time. Peace out, guys. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.